I'm now joined by Daniil Shapiro, director at Cerulli Associates, who's a research and consulting firm specializing in asset management and distribution trends worldwide. And Daniil specifically focuses on ETFs and alternative investments. And he's now on the line with me from New York. Daniil, it's uh, been a while. Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's terrific to be back. All right, so I want to start with a topic that is uh, obviously 100% right in your wheelhouse, which is alternative ETFs. We're going to combine uh, your two specialties here in ETFs and alts. And just by way of background, um, I actually covered this topic earlier with Betify's Tom Lydon. So we had a nice discussion around whether alt ETFs are actually good for investors and whether investors should be looking outside of the traditional 60-40 portfolio. Uh, we talked gold, crypto, it was a great discussion. But I'm very curious to hear what your latest research is showing around alt ETFs. Like, are you showing uh, interest picking up around these products? What are you hearing from ETF issuers? To me, this just feels like a topic where uh, we always hear, this is the year for alts. Right. And then I feel like the topic fades. It then pops back up. So what, what's your take on the uh, state of alternative ETFs right now? Yeah, I think for a start, um, the ETF structure is a bit understated in terms of how important it is to alternative investments overall. There are currently 400 and approximately uh, $430 billion in, uh, in liquid alternative uh, ETF assets. And that's quite a high amount for um, what was otherwise considered to be really a mutual fund specialty. So there are only approximately half a trillion dollars in mutual fund alternative assets. So at some point, the CTF ecosystem, which has been in, pos in uh, strong positive inflows, is going to overtake the mutual fund liquid alternative uh, slice. So I think that's really important. And another really important stat about uh, alternative uh, ETFs is that um, the reported usage by financial advisors for um, in terms of uh, how often they are used to access alternative investments, including commodities, it's actually quite high. It's actually the structure that is most used by financial advisors to access alternative investments overall. So if, when we pull financial advisors on the structures they're using to access alternatives, and let's start with the fact that uh, not all advisors uh, use alternative investments, approximately 60% use both alternative investments and commodities, but you have a strong 82% of advisors saying that they are using some type of alternative ETF product. And that actually outpaces the mutual fund. It outpaces all of the actual structures, uh, all the other structures, whether it's the intro fund, whether it's uh, private capital structures. It really outpaces uh, all of them, uh, if not in the reported allocations, then in the use of them itself. So in the use of, uh, then in the, use of uh, the structures themselves. So the structure itself is quite important to uh, alternative investing overall. We believe that alternative investments are getting a lot of attention from financial advisors who are looking for that third option to uh, stock and bond exposures. So overall, it's really it's an important ecosystem. It's a growing ecosystem. You have exposures there where they are derivative income exposures, which are getting a tremendous amount of flows. You have uh, buffered ETFs, which are getting gathering uh, very strong traction in the industry. And then you have a lot of uh, other structures which are maybe more hedge fund-like, which are also gathering traction in the ETF ecosystem. So for what it's worth, um, it's um, it's a little bit uh, it's a very it's a very critical structure for accessing uh, alternative investments. Uh, I think financial advisors are looking to use these types of products more and more over time. It benefits their practices in order to be able to both customize outcomes for their clients, 
potentially generate additional income uh, and differentiate their own practices. Okay, so I don't want to put uh, words in your mouth, but just hearing all that, it sounds like overall you're pretty optimistic on the future of alt ETFs. Is that fair? Yeah, exceptionally optimistic. If not for individual categories, then for the broader ecosystem uh, at large, right? You're going to have that very strong commodity sleeve where advisors can access uh, a gold ETF at an exceptionally low cost, for example. You have all, you have a wave of different um more custom products that are able to offer an advisor an outcome that the advisor is looking for, and that's all going to continue tra- going to continue to gather traction within this structure specifically that advisors like very much. And another reason that I'm optimistic is that you have the potential for more issuers to come in and offer such products to financial advisors via this structure. So that's uh, that's another exciting opportunity here as well. Yeah, and I don't want to head down this rabbit hole, but. Um... You know, we haven't even talked about crypto ETFs, that if you want to put crypto into the alts category and assuming we do get approval of a spot Bitcoin ETF or spot Ethereum ETF or both or or whatever, that's another potential tailwind for this category overall to uh, to watch. Um, Okay, let's go through a few of the uh, bigger topics and ETFs this year. And, uh, Daniil, I thought we'd start with active ETFs, which... Look, this has been pretty well documented, right? There have been outsized flows into active ETFs, a ton of new launches. I, I believe something like 75% of all launches this year are actively managed uh, products. We continue seeing the biggest names in traditional mutual funds moving into the space. Uh, and so, again, I'm just curious what you're seeing and hearing. I'll, I'll just open this topic up to you. What, what stands out as you think about the uh, quote-unquote rise of active ETFs? Yeah, there's um, there's a lot going on here. I think first start, you're absolutely right about product development. There's tremendous focus on uh, active ETF product development from uh, ETF issuers. Uh, it's something around uh, when we poll ETF issuers on the types of products they're currently developing uh, or planning to develop, something like 95% of them are focused on transparent active ETF exposures. So. That's a very strong focus, and it's gotten so significant that we've actually, one of the bullets in um, this year's uh, ETF report is, hey, don't forget the strategic beta is still out there if you want to offer something that's uh, low cost and maybe helps an advisor solve for a particular outcome. But yeah, you have treme- you have strong flows going to active ETFs uh, on the back of uh, what's really tremendous product development that's happening there. You have a wave of managers. Um, you have very few holdouts. Uh, that are sitting out of this uh, transparent active space at this point. You have more and more issuers that are looking to launch product there. They're entering the industry. You're seeing growth from Capital Group. You're seeing managers like Putnam, uh, which is already in the industry of MFS, which is one of the, which is the largest firm that largest mutual fund manager that's not currently participating, looking to join an industry in 2024, 2025. So you have this tremendous focus on launching these types of products, but they're kind of there are also a couple of concerns that we have about uh, just the potential for growth here overall. And if it's possible that managers are in certain places overestimating it, I think something that has been very significantly discussed is the fact that some of the most significant flows are going to product uh, that's really quantitative, but not necessarily what we would consider uh, traditional active exposures. So these are exposures, whether it's from Dimensional, whether it's from Avantis, and then you have the numbers that are also kind of being helped along by uh, whether it's going to be short-term fixed income product, um, whether it's going to be J.P. Morgan's uh, equity premium income fund with absolutely astounding flows. That all really helps drive that active 
ETF slice forward in terms of flows, but maybe it's not representative of that broader opportunity for traditional actives. And one of the most significant questions that I received during a lot of uh, client meetings is whether the growth of the ETF ecosystem overall has been driven by advisors saying we believe in passive or whether it's advisors saying that we just want something that's really low cost and inexpensive for our practices. And if the answer is that uh, over time, and this is, this is a question that's exceptionally difficult for anyone to answer, but if it turns out that what advisors were looking for over time has actually just been passive exposure, where they're just disappointed with active overall, and they don't necessarily believe that, uh, especially in those uh, large, what are considered to be more efficient buckets like uh, large cap U.S. equity and active manager is not required. If advisors truly believe in passive investments, then it's going to be really hard for these active managers to gather traction in this uh, active ETF ecosystem. See, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. I think without um, question, the price point, the cost of these ETFs have been a big driver. So some of the issuers you've mentioned, like, uh, say, J.P. Morgan, or Dimensional, I would throw Avantis in there. If you look at where they're launching products, they're very cost competitive. And also to your point, these overall aren't traditional stock picking strategies. These are much more systematic, active uh, strategies. And I think it's a combination of those two things that have really um, driven the interest and driven the flows here, that these are coming in at a much lower price point. And while they are active, they're not so active that there's this you know huge um, potential for for underperformance. I, I guess if I were to summarize, I think a traditional stock picking strategy coming in at whatever eighty basis points or a full percentage point, I don't think that's going to work in today's environment unless it's somebody like, say, an Ark invest where it's such high active share, the, the portfolio is doing something so materially different from other holdings that, um, you know, can be looked at as whatever, a satellite holding in a portfolio. And so maybe additive in that regard. But the, the whole dynamic here um, is very interesting. Well, one question I had for you on the active space, Daniil, is I think a big story as we go into 2024 is going to be this uh, the share class structure, this multi-share class structure. I think everybody knows the Vanguard patent expired uh, back in May. We've seen filings from Perpetual, uh, Dimensional, Fidelity to launch ETF share classes of their uh, their mutual funds. Do, do you think that could be a another big driver of active? You know, again, that's been a big story this year, but I wonder if this could be an even bigger tailwind as we go into 2024. Yeah, this is such a very interesting story to keep an eye on. So from the from our 2023 ETF survey, 24% of ETF issuers stated that they are considering developing product via a dual share class structure, which is an absolutely astounding amount get, given that uh, it just hasn't been approved for use for anyone other than Vanguard. And a lot of issuers that we speak with have a perception that it won't be approved. So it's almost as if the entire industry recognizes that this is a potential game changer, right? Imagine having a an ETF share class of a mutual fund, for example, where you are able to offer that more tax efficient exposure to investors whom it's important to. You don't have that. You don't have to do an evaluation between the mutual fund and the ETF because you know you're getting that same exposure. It's the same. 
it's kind of the beauty of having that true vehicle um, agnostic decision where you can choose the product in the best wrapper that it is for you. So it's a potential, it's an absolute game changer for the industry if it were to be approved. Uh, it's just that there are so many questions about whether the SEC is on board with this. Yeah, and we have to remember that Vanguard is only approved for index-based products, not active. So to your point, you know, that's the big hurdle is will these actually be approved by the SEC for use? Um, the, the only other thing I would add here is, which I think is obvious, you look at some of these issuers like Fidelity and, and say Dimensional, they have very um, large amounts of assets in uh, in retirement plans, 401ks and such. Th- those are mutual funds that are held in those. And so by having a share class structure, it would allow them the best of both worlds. They could keep that mutual fund business in the retirement accounts, but also still offer you know, the ETF share class and go after, say, advisors in the retail market. And again, I, I think it could be a huge growth driver, but it will come down to whether or not the SEC uh, gets comfortable. Um, all right. Another big story this year has been fixed income ETF. So I was looking this morning, I show that They've taken in about $185 billion in 2023. That's out of about $450 billion into ETFs overall. I'm just curious, is there any research or data points you might offer around bond ETFs or, or anything else standing out to you here? Yes. I think the first thing here is that the fixed income landscape is completely different from a couple, from what it was a couple of years ago. So when we looked at, uh, if you, you had yields uh, two years ago that were so low that these products were actually risky. They were, this was, this was, this was an exposure that advisors invested in for safety, which ended up being really, really risky as rates rose. And uh, financial advisors uh, very often took quite significant hits on their fixed income exposures that were very close to what they took on their equity exposures. Um, So that was all very, uh, that was all unpleasant. But at this point in time, you have higher rates, you have financial advisors who are more comfortable using the fixed income ETF structure. Uh, you have institutions which are increasingly looking to fixed income ETFs. So all in all, there are so many tailwinds for um, fixed income ETFs specifically. So that's really, that's something that's driven tremendous manager attention. So what, we're, uh, what we saw through the survey this year is that half of ETF issuers uh, perceive unmet demand for fixed income product. Uh, and not only that, not only is that perception of demand so significant, it's actually their primary focus. So ETF issuers are saying they're more likely to develop fixed income product than equity product at this point in time. Now, the only challenge here is that this is not being proven out by financial advisors. So only 19% of financial advisors are reporting that uh, unmet, demand, unmet demand for um, fixed income products. So that's a pretty significant gap. And it's a gap that uh, last time that we've seen this was with uh, ESG. And that gap has gone completely away as the interest in uh, the sustainable exposures just went down tremendously on behalf of both issuers and to a smaller degree advisors. But there is a question as to how much unmet demand truly exists for this type of fixed income product. Well, let me ask you this on that uh, unmet demand. I think that's really interesting. You know, you look at how granular fixed income ETFs are becoming. Uh, I, I think about issuers like bond blocks who are slicing and dicing the high yield bond market or uh, FM investments and their single treasury bond ETFs, those sorts of products. And I, I absolutely love the innovation here. But do you think bond ETFs are becoming too granular? Like, is this all too much for advisors and investors? Or do, or do you think this deeper toolbox is good? 
Yeah, this is another very significant open question that uh, the industry is going to need to figure out over time. Uh, when you look at the mutual fund structure, what has worked really well are those kinds of very well-diversified exposures. Um, for example, you might have one mutual fund product which owns government debt, mortgage-backed securities, asset-backed securities, um, corporates, um, all those um, all those types of credits really in one product. And then obviously kind of, as you mentioned, you have the ETF structure and everything is very, very niche and granular. And the question is long-term, do advisors just want to do everything themselves and they just continue to pick those uh, individual um, exposures at a very, very low cost? Or will they want to gravitate toward that kind of, um, what we are saying ETF issuers need to build out, are those more diversified types of uh, exposures within the ETF structure? which is where we think the white space is. But simultaneously, there certainly is that open question as to whether advisors will use that type of diversified product as opposed to using those types of exposures that you mentioned, which are very, very niche and granular. And it's possible those exposures uh, play particularly well to institutional channels as opposed to retail channels. So it's possible that um, the institutional channels um, actually do prefer that really, really low-cost, um, um, very, very niche ETF product which gives them access to some very, very tiny slice of um, the um, fixed income market. Um, at the same time, retail potentially may be better served by the diversified exposure, but it's just it's unclear if advisors will actually buy that product. No, I agree. I mean, early indications are if you look at the success thus far of bond blocks or FM, they've done very well for indie issuers um, coming to market. But you know, longer term, it will be interesting. I mean, that's just two examples. Are there going to be other issuers who are able to slice and dice the bond market and find success? Uh, Again, I think that's something to watch moving forward. Uh, Daniil, we're a little short on time, just a a couple of minutes left. Is there maybe one other ETF story that uh, has your attention right now? This can be on on anything. The one thing I want to make sure we don't forget about, don't forget to speak about, is the institutional channel. It's somewhat gets left behind a little bit to the extent that you've had the retail portion of ETF assets just grow year after year over year. So at this point, the ETF structure of assets in that structure are more than more than 80% of them are sourced from retail channels. And it makes it, it makes it easy to just have the institutional channel fall to the wayside in conversations. But at the same time, this is still a channel with uh, over a trillion dollars in uh, ETF ownership. You have a wide variety of participants, whether they are defined benefit plans, um, insurance uh, general accounts, um, and they're all looking to increase their use of ETFs over time. I think what needs to be done is that the industry needs to provide a lot of education for these investors and maybe help them understand the different benefits and use cases of the ETF structure. But as you have more and more ETF product, uh, including active product, which is what a lot of these investors tend to gravitate toward, you have more opportunities for these types of investors to use those exposures, um, especially, right, there are more of them. They are more liquid than they were before. The institution is less likely to be a very to be one of the largest uh, participants in that product if it has a lot of assets from a lot of other participants. It all just ends up making that segment uh, potentially – there is that potential for issuers to gather greater trench, to gather uh, greater traction in there by working very, very closely with those types of clients. So we just want to make sure it doesn't fall to the wayside. And defined contribution is going to be very, very difficult for issuers to penetrate uh, because of um, just the other structures, whether it's mutual funds or CITs, which are just a tremendous fit for that channel. But uh, when you're looking at insurance general accounts and the 
possibility of uh, increasing their use of fixed income ETFs. That's really attractive. And then the same thing with defined benefit plans. That's a great way to uh, – ETFs are a great way for them to use um, to secure a low-cost, long-term core holding exposure. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that in terms of the institutional side of the equation. You know, you look here more recently, there have been some you know fairly high-profile examples of, of pensions or insurers allocating to various ETFs. And one of the things that they'll do is they will come in uh, and, and take, I, I know, maybe a smaller allocation of the overall assets in, a, in an ETF, but an institution's not coming in with chump change, right? Typically, they're coming in and making a bigger allocation overall. And so as I think about the potential future growth of the ETF space, institutions can absolutely be a big driver here. I mean, we know advisors have been the primary driver of uh, ETF flows and, and obviously retail. I think if you can get the institutional channel fully comfortable, you're talking about a very significant uh, tailwind there. But, Daniil, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, great to reconnect. Keep up all of the uh, good work. You know I love the ETF research data that Cerulli puts out. So thank you for that, and thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me on the show, Nate. Always a pleasure. That was Daniil Shapiro, director at Cerulli Associates.